Hello, listeners. This is Soren. I wanted to give you just a brief note about today's episode. We encountered near the very end of recording some technical difficulties. And so what you'll notice is about 50 minutes into the episode, we switch over to um, our backup audio track for about five minutes or so, um, just at the very end. And that's uh, why, if it sounds a little bit different to you, we've switched over to that backup audio. Just wanted you to know that so you didn't think you were entering the twilight zone or anything like that. But uh, I hope you uh, still enjoy the episode. There's a lot of good stuff going on. And thank you for listening. The grasp had slipped away. Bound by a pledge given from the depths of her pity, she would have been capable of undertaking a toil which her judgment whispered was vain for all uses except that consecration of faithfulness, which is a supreme use. But now her judgment, instead of being controlled by duteous devotion, was made active by the embittering discovery that in her past union there had lurked the hidden alienation of secrecy and suspicion. The living, suffering man was no longer before her to awaken her pity. There remained only the retrospect of painful subjection to a husband whose thoughts had been lower than she had believed, whose exorbitant claims for himself had even blinded his scrupulous care for his own character, and made him defeat his own pride by shocking men of ordinary honor. This is the explosive story of the Karamazov family. The seed of depravity and sin that was in their father was the only thing the brothers had in common. Welcome back to The Reader's Karamazov. We are your hosts, the Bastard Sons of Hegel. I am Carl Bookmarks. I'm Friedrich Pichot. And I'm Soren Rearguard. We're back this week with our third episode on George Eliot's Middlemarch. We're talking about books five and six. We'll get to that in just a minute, but first, just a little bit of housekeeping. You can, as always, follow us on social media. You can follow us on Twitter at The Reader's K. On Facebook, facebook.com slash theReadersKaramazov. You can send us an email, theReadersKaramazov at gmail.com. You can find our podcast through Podbean, but also on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts, if you want to take a minute to rate and review us, we'd appreciate that. And um, send us any feedback you have. We've been getting some nice comments on our most recent episodes, and we love hearing from you all. Any questions you have, we'd love to answer, or ideas you want to throw out there about the book especially. We'd love to talk about it. So we're back this week, books five and six. As always, I'm going to give a brief plot summary, and then we're going to dig into some things. We have a kind of fun episode today. We're going to do some different things. Sometimes when you, you know, we have a four-parter on Middle March, that's a lot to cover. Um, so we can get into some some interesting and kind of out-of-the-way corners of the book um, rather than just hitting all these big themes that you're always going to hear when you talk about Middle March. So we're going to get into some of those byways tonight. Uh, but first, a little plot summary. So... Book five, The Dead Hand, and then book six, The Widow and the Wife, we have some, some finally some kind of major plot changes. The biggest one by far is that partway through book five, so about halfway through the book or so, maybe a little bit past halfway through the book, Casaban, Dorothea's husband, finally dies. We've been kind of waiting for it. We've been sort of primed for it before then, but he, he's 
sort of taken ill for a little while. He's getting sicker and sicker, and then he finally dies. The big result of that is that he leaves a sort of scandalous provision in his will, which is that Dorothea is not allowed to remarry specifically Will Ladislaw, Casabon's cousin, or she will be lose Casabon's inheritance. Everybody around her takes this as a grave insult to her. Nobody expects her to marry Will Ladislaw, Dorothea included, uh, but it's taken as very insulting to her character that Casabon was clearly jealous of this relationship and thought that maybe Will Ladislaw was going to come and gold dig, basically, and take his money. Didn't want that, so he provided for that in his will. So that's as a, of this basic problem. By the end of book six, Will has talked about leaving Middlemarch for a while. He's going to do it finally to sort of avoid scandal. He has a sort of tearful goodbye with Dorothea. They realize in that moment there's something here, right, beyond just the relations of a woman to her former husband's cousin. That old problem. That old problem. <laughs> Cousins. But we have some other big developments. So in the Lydgate plotline, we have some... Tensions developing in their marriage. In particular, two kind of tensions. One is that Rosamond becomes pregnant and she doesn't take Lydgate's medical advice. And because of that, she has a miscarriage. We're led to believe it's because she doesn't follow his advice. So that's a source of tension. The bigger source of tension, however, running through this is that they're getting more and more in debt. And Lydgate finally realizes, I've got to do something about this. We've got to start selling furniture, selling our nice things. Rosamond is not very happy about that, and she's um, not cooperating very much with that. So that's kind of in that plot line. And then we have this other weird kind of plot line that goes along with Dorothea's plot line, and it has to do with Will Ladislaw. And Will Ladislaw, we, we're learning more about his family. Um, remember, his grandmother was related to Casabon. She shamed the family by marrying a Polish man. And then... Her son married this woman who was a stage actress from England who kind of ran away from home. And what we discover over the course of this section is that she was the daughter of a woman whose husband died. And that woman then remarried this man, Bolstrode, who's the banker, the main banker in Middlemarch. And Bolstrode made his fortune by marrying this rich woman, getting her money. And the scandalous part of it is that she, at the end of her life, had gone to look for her daughter to try to reconcile and give this money to her. Bolstrode was sort of in charge of this operation. He figured out this woman's still alive, but he didn't say anything to his wife. And he kind of pretended like, oh, we can't find her anywhere. And so he was the one who got the money instead of Will Ladislaw's mother. So Will Ladislaw has been deprived of this fortune by Bolstrode's actions, kind of contrary to Bolstrode's professed religion. He's a very outwardly pious man. Um, he has this sort of secret that's haunting him. By the end of this, he's confessed this to Will. Will doesn't want to ha have anything to do with him because he feels like it's going to be dishonorable to take this money. Um, so that's where we kind of are at this point. Will's leaving Middlemarch. Dorothea doesn't want him to go emotionally, even though she understands Rosamond and, and Lydgate are sort of fighting. And we don't know what, exactly what's going to happen with this Bolstrode plot in all of this. But we're pushing towards our ending with two books to go. So that's our plot for this time. Um, there's a lot going on here. And we can unpack some of the interesting things that Elliot's doing here. Maybe some of the smaller details that we can pick apart. There's plenty of other people we're going to talk about. We'll talk about Bolstrode a good bit because he suddenly becomes quite important in this section. I'm going to throw it over to you all, though. What do you want to talk about first? 
I mean, I just want to say as a comment on that plot summary, which was excellent, and the book so far, which is sprawling and covers a lot of ground. We've talked about it as a web. We've conceived of the narrative structure as a web. A lot of a lot of critics have thought of it that way as well. And I just wanted to comment because Soren was giving us that rundown that we're kind of seeing the consequences of a web organization and envisioning life like that, I guess, in that people become enmeshed in each other's lives through marriages, of course, through business transactions. But then in these, it, you know, we talked about this with Featherstone's death and the will and the comeuppance he might have planted in it, as well as the unforeseen consequences that he might have set in motion. And we're kind of seeing that play out generationally here with the Bulstrode plot in that he now is having this past return. He's looking to a future that's potentially happening. And as we'll see in the next two books that wrap up the novel, the financial entanglements of characters with Bolstrode as the banker will come to reflect on them uh, morally as well. And so I think that the amount of stuff that you had to cover, Soren, is also speaking to Elliot's, the depth of the connections she's making between these characters on economic, emotional, moral, whatever levels, as well as familial. Yeah, that, that web image, you know, it's a cliche, but it's a very helpful cliche mm-hmm. in part because you think about the web, the physical spider's web, Right, you touch one part, the other parts reverberate. And so there's this sense of reverberation going on here. In some ways that almost, you know, we, we could talk about maybe whether some of the Bullstrode stuff feels a little bit a little bit contrived, possibly, but it's also it's there for, for the reason of showing how people's lives are implicated in other people's lives. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we get that maybe really wonderfully here in the part where Fred Vinci asks Mr. Fairbrother to go basically plead his case to Mary Garth to say, do you like Fred enough that he should keep hope that he can marry you someday? Not realizing that Mr. Fairbrother is himself in love with Mary Garth. Mary Garth doesn't realize this either. Mr. Fairbrother being a very dutiful man does it. His heart's like breaking in front of him, right? And nobody knows. And then they finally figure it out and they're like, oh crap, what did we do here? Like, We've sort of mistreated this guy so badly. But the way in which people's lives are just connected together in some inextricable ways is really nice and, and tightly wound here. I think Elliot, mm-hmm. Elliot does a very good job of bringing those different strands together. If we're, if to kind of confuse metaphors or combine them, if we're in the pure glass and the web at the same time, mm-hmm. there's this reverb and there's many centers, not one center to a web like there often is in a spider web or different kinds of webs it's a non-centralized decentralized web in some way but yeah that was an amazing plot summary and it really helps crystallize where different themes of inheritance and disheritance are working in like plot 1a and subplot 2b you know like you're really connecting them for us i, I want to just mention this is not something we're going to really dr- I, I know so i mentioned we're going to drill into some interesting weird and maybe small moments in the reading that we've done for today. But I want to mention a small moment that I think is just interesting that Ellie does, and maybe we don't have that much to say about it. But as a writer, she's, she does things that I think of as very modern, and maybe they're not. Maybe, in fact, they're quite old-fashioned. But when she has the pure glass going, and Carl mentioned the, you know, the, the many centers of it, she sometimes dwells on a center for quite some time and really, and really goes down deep into that person's consciousness. And it's a surprising person sometimes. So when... Joshua Rigg is 
being examined as a character who has financial interests that overlap with Bulstrode's. Elliot takes like a couple of pages to talk about how became how he became interested in trade and he had, he became passionate about it and it goes on for like at least a page and then she stops and starts a new paragraph and just says enough period and then we are concerned <laughs> with looking at this for this reason and gets back to the plot and sort of drives the narrative along and I love this at, at moments she's at a new center and really I think seriously considering this person as a human being and then is like okay okay that's not important though really maybe it to someone it is but to the narrative at hand we need to get back to it and i appreciate those moves throughout that's great friedrich i like that a lot yeah joshua rigg is a great character because he's he's really there as a sort of connecting piece right mm-hmm. he's not doing a whole lot in this novel but he's still such a weird character like he's described as being very frog like <laughs> uh, which she says can be attractive in a woman um, i'm not sure about oh, that yeah, but I remember uh, this. Uh, but not a man was, <laughs> but not a man and he so he's just this ugly you know like mr toad of toad hall guy <laughs> um, but he, even he's given this sort of moment to shine it's like here's how yeah here's how he like watched these tradesmen working and he's always like i'm going to do that you know yeah th- these wonderful moments of drilling down and then uh, that's a really wonderful connection too enough okay we got to bring it back now <laughs> enough of joshua rig let's get off of him get it's like to, an even more blunt like why always dorothea it's just like enough we're getting back to bolstrode <laughs> the more you read in this book that you know the further you get along the more you appreciate her sense you know we talked a little bit about this last time with the pier glass but the the combination of command and control with the ability to be a little bit free to let the characters have their freedom and then to bring it back to where we're going with the center. Yeah. Friedrich, it does feel very modern in the sense that like for certain paragraphs or certain sentences, like nothing could be edited out. Whatever she was going to say was whatever George Elliott was going to say right there. It's going to stay in just the wildest sentence or two. It's a great sort of palate cleanse. Should we talk about Bolstrode a little bit? We promised he's sort of, you know, we've we've given a lot of time to a lot of these characters already. We talked about Caleb Garth quite a bit last time, Fred Vinci. We're kind of covering all of our characters bit by bit. And, and Bolstrode's, I think, our last sort of floating piece here. So let's talk a little bit about him. In a lot of ways, this book does not have a villain, right, in a traditional sense. In a lot of ways, though, Bolstrode would be the, the character maybe who's the least sympathetic in some ways he's maybe a little bit caricatured but in other ways really not but but he's the character who's maybe the the most other people in the book don't really like and with Mm -hmm. good reason some people put up with him but I, i don't think very many people really genuinely like him his wife seems to like him but not a ton of people are are super on board with bolstrode so just briefly you know i'll describe him and then we can talk about the ways in which elliot is maybe even with this unsavory character kind of drawing our, our sympathies towards him. Bullstrode, you know, I, I described his role in the plot earlier, but as a character, he, he is a banker, and he is now a member of the Church of England um, because of his second marriage to Mr. Vincy's sister. But originally, he is a member of the one of the dissenting religions, so he's a nonconformist. He's in what in the 19th century would be described as an evangelical. Again, that's a little bit different than 20th century, 21st century evangelicalism. There's an intense emphasis in, in these sects, these dissenting sects on personal piety and also on productive commerce, right? A, a sort of a sense of 
sort of showing your worth by making money. And mm-hmm. that's certainly something Bulstrode has carried with him into the Church of England. And so there's an interesting, I'll, I'll let Frieder talk a little bit more about this because he, he's the expert here, but there's a sense in which these dissenting churches, their strains of it are kind of being folded into Anglicanism in the 19th century, oppositely from there's some, some strains of maybe Roman Catholicism that are being folded in, in other areas of Anglicanism. And then in the middle, you have people like Mr. Fairbrother who are just sort of want to be average Anglicans. They, they, you know, he's a preacher. He wants to preach a good sermon, go look at his bugs and just yeah. kind of get on, get on with life. You have these sort of two other competing forces. We don't really get the Anglo-Catholicism in this book. But we get this sort of pietistic strain that's kind of demanding a little bit more out of religion than just a sermon on Sunday and then kind of leading a good life the rest of the week or something like that. Do you want to kind of explain a little bit about some of the things that are going on with Bulstrode's religion? Sure. I think what's pertinent is, well, he's Methodist, right? Do they say that he's Methodist specifically? And Methodism was within Anglicanism and like a small fold in it that had then Wesley broke out of Anglicanism, I think, or maybe it was after Wesley, but whatever. It's It then became a dissenting party, right? And uh, I want to contrast him as a Methodist with someone like Fred Vinci, who isn't even in the church, right? He has a bachelor's degree, but he's thinking about joining the church. He doesn't really want to. And I think a key difference between the Anglican structures as diverse as they are, because the church is split, you know, Anglo-Catholic, high church, ritualistic, devoted to their liturgical year, Anglicans versus like low church enthusiasts who are more about the feeling of belief, which is the side um, as a dissenter that Bolstrode would fall on. There's a sort of Trollope-esque, Warden-esque, the book we talked about last season, Anglican way of life that's going on that is you know, where people are in the church, but maybe they're not passionately devoted to the beliefs that they, they preach every Sunday. It's maybe a little more prosaic. And so Fred Vinci's like, do I even want to go in the church? I don't know. Like Mary doesn't wouldn't want me to, and I don't really want to, but it's a way to be a gentleman. It's a way to get by really. And it's a sort of, not that this is true of all Anglicans, of course not, but for a lot of the gentlemen of the era, it's a way to become a member of a society, right? And for Bulstrode, it's more about do-gooding, the use of capital to to further the aims of what one's own morality is, right? And so that, that to me is the important difference between them is that Bulstrode's imagination has created this sort of providential outcome of his life or path of his life where what he's doing has eternal ramifications on his soul and for fred vinci it's more like do i want to join the church will mary like that i I don't know maybe i should just be a farmer gentleman or something else and it's just a lot more down to earth can i ask a question then so i didn't i didn't remember the mention of him being a methodist uh, which is fascinating to me why is it then that she is describing him so often as being kind of puritan like because you know in a technical sense those are very different things Mm -hmm. Like Methodism would be, you're right, emerges out of Anglicanism, and it's very much based around a sort of almost anti-Calvinist approach, right? A sort of Arminianism, the freedom of the will. So why then is he associated? Is it just, has it already by this point, Puritan has just become this derogatory term that doesn't really have any reference to the Puritan doctrines already by the the 19th century? That's such a great question, in part because like Puritanism, I think, is so strongly associated with America by that point. 
but I, I honestly don't, I don't know. I would assume reading just this novel that Puritan seems to be associated with a tendency, right? Mm-hmm. That's separated from doctrine and that Puritan is the way is used the way that some people use the word Victorian today, <laughs> like <laughs> means prudish and harsh. And it, that would be my instinct, but I'm not, I'm not sure. Carl, what do you make of Bulstrode? Oh, sorry. You guys are a little too far afield for me there in the in the English weeds of Middle March <laughs> um, for me to get fully into that. But I like the take of him as potential or possible antagonist if there is one. And thinking of like the web-like, pure glass-like structure, I feel like there's so much subtlety to the book and you have to appreciate a long expansive subtlety or something in order to sort of judge this book fairly in some way and so part of what makes it kind of a hard book at least for me to appreciate on this read but i'm like it sort of retunes my sense of appreciation is this sense of how do all these subtleties add up because my tendency i think the modern tendency would be like okay it's about dorothea and we'll get back to her eventually and when we do things will clear up or you know the fog will disperse and perhaps that happens and perhaps not and so with Bulstrode y'all are drawing me again to this sense of like here's a different backstory and here's a different way that all of you know provincial life turns upon another character's gossip upon past and what exactly his marital or business or social influence is and how easily that can sort of slip below having any influence on the events of the day or rise to sort of a pinnacle where it in fact has a lot of cause for all the events that happen later so I, I still don't know what to make of him, but I like how you've sort of situated him for me in that discussion. To continue, as uh, Carl suggested, getting out of the, the Anglican dissenting slash, slash dissenting weeds, I think Bolstrode is also interesting. As someone who illustrates something we talked about last time, which is self-delusion and self-knowledge, Yeah, yeah. that he's someone who knows he did something wrong, just generally wrong, in his past but who has tried to overcome it not by addressing it, but by living his life well in a pious way that he sees as as pious. And then when Eliot's exploring that inner life in the last 30 years or so of his life, and she's describing what she's doing, I think it's interesting that she talks about how he's able to justify all of the acts that he, the actions that he took individually, and then taken together, they've made this like wave movement that has become as a whole maybe hard to justify but he's like but i can go back and track each of those decisions and say well it was right for that it was right for this and then she makes a great comparison to you know cromwell in the in the middle of the civil war that led to the interregnum where he's saying do you call these bare events the lord pity you that he's remembering like these aren't bare events these are events that are interconnected and that are culminating in a life and he's now seeing this person raffles who is this nefarious figure coming to exploit him basically because he has knowledge of his past and kind of realizing 
maybe those self-delusions and justifications and the attempts I was making to give glory to God were just that. They were delusions. And he's just like frozen with terror about what's going to happen, right? Because of that. I think too that Eliot also narrates this in a way similar to something we talked about last week with Kazaban when Kazaban is seen to be like hiding behind the mask, but we're all hiding behind the mask, right? Eliot reminds us in the same way um, she's talking about how he's trying to be a banker, a churchman, a public benefactor, a sleeping partner in trading concerns. But now, 30 years on, this past had arisen and immersed his thought as if with a terrible eruption of a new sense overburdening the feeble being of himself. Himself, I mean, mixing quotation and, and my own interjections there. And then a little bit further down the page, uh, she talks about Bolstrode trying to like gull himself into believing these things he's telling himself. And then she writes, he was simply a man whose desires had been stronger than his theoretic beliefs and who had gradually explained the gratification of his desires into satisfactory agreement with those beliefs. If this be hypocrisy, it is a process which shows itself occasionally in us all. She always has that move where she's like, he's the villain. Okay. We can criticize him. Sure. And then pulls it back to Mm -hmm. sort of say like, we're all benighted and confused and trying to convince ourselves that we're doing something good. Yeah. It really shows us, uh, writerly knowledge of this web-like structure where Mm -hmm. one of the benefits to having arguably no protagonist antagonist is that sense of showing strong heroic and villain-like tendencies in each of these characters so that we can say well that's in all of the characters in this field so the very novelistic or you know moralizing tendency towards villainizing or heroizing we're drawn away from that as readers. So that's like a very clever writerly move. And not reduced to a platitude of like, oh, we find interesting fiction interesting because we can relate to people, even the people we don't think we can relate to. It's much more in-depth as far as the character goes, and we see ourselves in that, but it's not reduced to just, oh, and we're similar. And it's an uncomfortableness there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't want to relate to Bullstrode. Right. <laughs> right? You don't, or Joshua Featherston Rig, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you you don't want to relate to those people. Like you want to be able to push them aside and say, okay, I'm not like them, right? And then I, I love that that image you've given us, Friedrich, of sort of like ripping back and exposing the way in which these people are like us in very important ways. I think that's really an apt way of putting it. Something I've been thinking a lot about um, since our conversation last time when we were talking about Pascal is I'm kind of seeing on this read through this book. One of the things that it's doing is offering us a series of portraits in the ways in which lives can go astray and the ways in which lives can go astray because of this sort of unfulfilled desire or whatever it is, right? This this inability to have contentment. And I see Bolstrode as, as a, um, a particularly maybe like a piquant example of that. I want to take us to one place that I think kind of bounces off of some of the stuff you've already been talking about, Friedrich. This is a description of him as he's kind of working his way towards that breaking point of having to confess to Will Ladislaw. The service he could do to the cause of religion had been through life the ground he alleged to himself for his choice of action. It had been the motive which he had poured out in his prayers. Who would use money and position better than he meant to use them? Who could surpass him in self-abhorrence and exaltation of God's cause? And to Mr. Bulstrode, God's cause was something distinct from his own rectitude of conduct. 
it enforced a discrimination of God's enemies, who were to be used merely as instruments, and whom it would be as well if possible to keep out of money and consequent influence. And then this is what she has to say about this, this sort of line of reasoning. This implicit reasoning is essentially no more peculiar to evangelical belief than the use of wide phrases for narrow motives is peculiar to Englishmen. There is no general doctrine which is not capable of eating out our morality if unchecked by the deep-seated habit of direct fellow feeling mm. with individual fellow men. But a man who believes in something else than his own greed has necessarily a conscience or standard to which he more or less adapts himself. I love this moment because Eliot is pointing us to, in a very sympathetic way, to Bulstrode's problem, which is that he has abstracted too much, right? Everything for him is in service of this abstract notion, I'm going to use my, my money for the glory of God. And because of that, it leads him down this chain of reasoning to the point of saying, like, well, if I don't have this money, other people are going to have it, and they're going to do bad things with it instead of good things. So I should get this money, even if I get it in ways that aren't okay, that are morally suspect, because ultimately I'm going to use them for the glory of God. And she says that really wonderful line, if unchecked by fellow feeling for our fellow men. And I want to dwell on that for just a minute. What it brought to mind, and in particular, was a, a very wonderful book by a friend of the podcast, Abram Van Engen, his first book, Sympathetic Puritans, which is all about um, this feeling of sympathy that you find in American Puritan literature, which you kind of don't expect, right? The stereotype about Puritans is that they're very stern and unfeeling people. They're only concerned with doctrine or something like that, a right living. But what he's actually getting at throughout the course of the book is that sympathy, or the other word that he uses quite often is fellow feeling, which is this word that the Puritans are using, is, is an important driver of their lives. This idea of being able to feel the lives of other people. And, you know, that's very limited in some ways for the Puritans, but it's also a driver of the way that they behave. And so I think it's interesting that that word is cropping up here, this idea of fellow feeling being something that Eliot is identifying as missing from Bolstrode. But it's not, we might think this move is like, oh, he's just too religious. It's not that, right? And, and we might expect that, you know, because Eliot grew up in that evangelical background and then left it, we might expect her to be very harsh, condemnatory. But she's not. She's saying, this is true of Bolstrode, and he's this evangelical, but it's true of many people in many different ways. Anytime the problem is not the particular set of beliefs, it's the abstraction of those beliefs at the expense of the connection to particular human beings. Because he was so connected to this abstract idea, he forgot his duty to his first wife, Will Ladislaw's grandmother. He, he forgot that sense of duty there, that particularity. He sacrificed that, and that's what ate out his morality gradually over time. I love that you're bringing us to, to the Puritans and fellow feeling, but I also love that you're using the word abstraction because you're kind of bringing us around a roundabout way to your own wheelhouse, Soren Kierkegaard, who in the present age writes about uh, abstraction as the sort of dominant thing going on in his age, negative thing, not necessarily like it's an age of reflection rather than action, right? And in the present age, he writes briefly about people who act on principle 
and Bolstrode strikes me as that type of person. He, he uses that pejoratively, and he says that anyone who says they do something on principle isn't acting from any sort of moral standing. It's, it's t- completely arbitrary to be saying that you're doing anything on principle because the like true religious person has a feeling like a moral enthusiastic response to what is right and what you're supposed to do. And Bolstrode has that feeling. He knows deep down that what he did was wrong, but then he concocts this abstracted way of doing things on principle and lives his life out for 30 years on by principle and Kierkegaard is someone who'd say, "Yeah, that's that's an abstracted, removed way, a, a removed way of living from what you feel is to be like a truly moral and religious way to be in the world." Both the quotes that you just read are this really one of I think Eliot's strengths, and it reminds me sort of like a Henry James novel too, where there's a lot of this value ordering and. Um, what someone like Kant would call like practical reasoning. How do we move from a certain sense of reason and, and the breakdown of what's happening through reason or ends and means through reason to then abstracting a little bit and looking at those outcomes and the values that inform the premises and the outcomes and then moving away from it. And in, in both instances, Elliot really just has a dense and rich sense of how many values are operating on this character's Mm -hmm. actions at this time and how they're shifting and how his cognitive bias is missing them it's one of i think like the hallmarks of the 19th century novel in this you know the arguably most famous 19th century novel uh friedrich you want to take a you want to talk a little bit more about caleb garth this time around we talked you know a fair bit about him last time but there's always more in the garth farmhouse to be squeezed out so you want to take us in particular to one section so why don't you take us there and tell us um why you wanted to talk about this section and what you think it it, it kind of reveals about Elliot uh sure I just wanted to talk about fellow feeling in an in another way I guess from another angle as well as you know just to connect back to the previous episodes the way that Elliot's representing the working class not Caleb Garth, but people he's interacting with Caleb Garth also is you know sometimes referred to as in the same way Bolstrode is kind of equal and opposite as someone who's maybe a little flat because so even throughout the novel but you know we talked last episode um about how that's actually there's actually a lot of depth to that character so anyway i'll start with maybe an earlier moment and then shift over to caleb garth not long before kazaban's death we're given this brief moment where we shift our attention to tantrip the servant and Pratt, the butler, and they kind of talk about how they don't like Kazabon. It happens for about two and a half paragraphs, short paragraphs too, but they are represented as characters and they're servants. So that's weird. That's all, they, they haven't been really represented so far in the novel. On page 452, they each get a few lines of dialogue back and forth to each other, denigrating Kazabon, and then on the next page, she dies. A few pages later, we're with Celia and her baby, who's described as sort of like a Buddha, which is great, an unconscious center around which they're all floating at this moment. And then she says something to the help, to her servants, but it's offset in parentheses, and it's it's just there and gone. And so like the way the working class is being represented in this novel is sort of uneven. It's fluctuating. But then we have a direct confrontation between Fred Vincy, Caleb Garth, and these workers 
who have come to attack the surveyors for the railway because they think the railway is change, change is bad. Changes that have come to our Midlands town have been bad for me as a poor person. And Caleb Garth and Fred Vinci don't want them to attack these guys. And so I mean, Fred is like, ah, let me go like give him a beating. Let me, let me fight this guy. And Caleb's like, no, no, no. Caleb's kind of taking him under his wing and says, no, no, let me go talk to him. And so Caleb goes and starts kind of paternalistically, but not in a super negative way, uh, explaining to them why, hey, actually, this isn't so bad. But then there's this one guy who's been there laboring forever, a wiry guy named Timothy. And he stands up and says, look, I've been here working for decades and everything that's come through has hurt the poor man. Nothing's helped the poor man. And like what here is going to about the railway is going to help us. And then Elliot takes us away from the dialogue and talks about Timothy for a second, an actual representation of a working class person and says that Caleb, who is a really reasonable guy has like run into a person who he can't, he can't convince with reason. And he says that he can't do that because he was in a difficulty because quote, Caleb was in a difficulty known to any person attempting in dark times and unassisted by miracle to reason with rustics who are in possession of an undeniable truth, which they know through a hard process of feeling and let it fall like a giant's club on your neatly carved argument for a social benefit, which they do not feel, end quote. And I think what I, I like about that moment is that she's talked about feeling as a way of navigating the world. And here she has a person who's not educated, who's not in possession of a great deal of knowledge like Kazuman, but he is in possession of an undeniable truth, and he's learned it through a, quote, hard process of feeling his entire life. He's learned that poor people aren't being helped by the progress, quote unquote, that's going on in the 19th century. And Caleb, as a reasonable person, says to him basically, like, I can't argue with you because to argue with you would be to cast aside the entire life that you've lived to this point. And then he just kind of compromises with him and says like i can't argue with you but you guys can't go around attacking people coming to survey the land um and so it speaks to caleb's reasonableness but i think it's an interesting and they're fleeting moments but it's an interesting moment of elliot representing a working class person and doing so in a way that gives them full possession of like a truth and a truth that cannot be denied by someone like caleb who's trying to reason with them i want to know what you guys thought of that i mean as carl bookmarks i can't give her the highest marks um, <laughs> pun intended on working class interiority uh, throughout no. the novel. Um, Fair. And in general, I think like the sense of this novel's definition of what middle of the country or provincial life is really denies the heft and thought and effort and work of the working class writ large. But I think because it is a novel of moments and because... Elliot is really dexterous with who gets a good moment throughout the book. What you just said is totally valid. You know, there are these moments where a surprising amount of autonomy or respect or interiority is given a sprinkle of, of love or bump or retweet from Elliot kind of feel. But it, I wouldn't go so far as to say at the end in the way that for Bolstrode, and I think what we talked about Bolstrode is another really good metaphor for the book. It's like a ship of Theseus problem or the heap paradox problem where 
you repeat and repeat and repeat an action which seems on its own justified at the end to find that you have a whole new thing, a whole new ship seemingly, or a heap when it was impossible to get to one. It seems like the we don't get a heap or a new ship with respect to the working class at the end of the book, though we do with the sense of middle class or however many you know hyper defined classes there are in english life always you know very many but it's above you know like uh you know a super pro working class you know novel or something which there aren't very many of you know because it's you know the bildungsroman tradition right is a, is a bildung that sort of pushes against for precisely the reason you brought up here you know uh a deep interiority of a worker leading to a entry into the ideology that governs the totality of the, the, the capital or the city. Maybe that's way too broad of a way of putting things, but it's sometimes kind of hard to point to, you know, what is the best Marxist novel or something. It's it's not Middlemarch is all I'm saying on that front. <laughs> what, what I like about this moment is, you know, I was probably leading the charge last time, sort of singing the praises of Caleb Garth, and I stand by that. <laughs> but it's, ni- it's nice to have a moment where he kind of realizes that his own ethos bumps up against a limit. It's a fun moment because previously he's been the one doing that to Mr. Brooke, uh, Sir James, right? Their like, kind of way of living life smacks up against Caleb Garth's and in another way maybe like Mr. Vinci's does because he's just trying to make money or something like that right Garth flummoxes everybody in this book because he doesn't care about money and he doesn't care mm-hmm. about status he cares about doing a good job but then like that whole worldview is itself flummoxed by Timothy who just doesn't like doesn't care at all about this and he doesn't he, he can't kind of reconcile his view to Garth's to, to really mixed metaphors here it's almost like a russian doll situation right and we're like we're twisting we're twisting we're opening up and getting underneath and then like we twist we get to timothy and he's like the hard center doll at the (laughs) at the the, you know the tiny one at the at the bottom we can't twist him open and figure out what's going on inside but he's there at like the center of things kind of um i don't know like rebuking everything else is why it's a mixed metaphor here like he's there as an uncracked nut, um, <laughs> right? That the other characters can't understand. And, and Elliot, I think, can't understand him either. I think you're absolutely right, Carl. Like, like Elliot can't really grasp this character, but she also, she still presents him. Yes. He's there as this sort of, not that he's the key to all mythologies to this book, but right, he's that moment that can't be placed in the web like everybody else can. So I do like that, that that's inclu- mm-hmm. at least included, right? If she has limits to her understanding and her sympathy and they don't extend to the interiority of the working class. She's at least willing to incorporate that illegibility into the book itself. Yeah. And it's a, it's a very important lesson about, you know, sympathy and fellow feeling and, and that sense of what is uniting people who are able to speak about things is sometimes uh, an acknowledged difference, right? An acknowledged gap between feeling and experience. So she's, she's dexterous enough to keep that and, and move with that in this, in this moment in a good way. As Zizek says about Bane's movement of the Gotham people in The Dark Knight Rises, sometimes it's about the fact that something's being represented at all rather than the movie's judgment of what's happening. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking us there, Friedrich. I think that's a very productive place to think about 
fellow feeling and maybe its limits in the novel. Before we go, let's get weird for a little bit. <laughs> so we're not going to talk a ton about Kosovan's death directly. It's there in the book. It happens. Um, and, we, you know, I mentioned in the plot summary, it's going to have some effects for the characters moving forward. But I was really arrested by a small detail that happens in the Kosovan's death chapter. And I want to take us there, and, and I, I asked the boys to prepare some stuff ahead of time <laughs> to think about this strange little detail that we're given in this chapter. If you're like us and you're literary critics, you maybe possibly sometimes pay a little bit too much attention to the presence of other texts within <laughs> your texts. And so you Shout get out very to everyone interested. who pauses the movie to read the book that's yes. in the background. Yeah. Absolutely. So like uh, like Mel Gibson's character in Conspiracy Theory, collecting copies of Catcher in the Rye. Is that right? Is that what he does? We're concerned with the books that are being woven in here. Obviously, there's not really tons of, you know, there's some art that's talked about, but in a little bit of music, maybe there's no films. It's the 19th century. But there's a lot of, there's a text that come up here a fair bit in Eliot's text. And I was just like, I, I stopped because I read the stuff that was going on in this chapter, and there's three books that get mentioned as favorites of Dorothea, and this happens at the beginning of the chapter in which Casabon dies, and I refuse to believe that this is some sort of accident. So in my conspiratorial Mel Gibson-esque, in no. this one way only, reading of this text, I want to take us there and, and, and think about what these three texts might be doing for Eliot. So I'm just going to read a little bit from this chapter um, at the very beginning. So keep in mind, do not forget, at the end of this chapter, Casabon is dead. He's not dead yet. <laughs> They've just gotten out of church. Dorothy is kind of mad at him, uh, at Casabon. They usually spent a part of the hours between luncheon and dinner on a Sunday. Mr. Casabon in the library, dozing chiefly, and Dorothea in her boudoir, where she was wont to occupy herself with some of her favorite books. There was a little heap of them on the table in the bow window, of various sorts, from Herodotus, which she was learning to read with Mr. Casabon, to her old companion Pascal, and Keeble's Christian Year. So those are the three books that we get. We get Herodotus's Histories, we get Pascal, who we talked about last time, and we get Keeble's Christian Year. And so I've asked the other fellow sons of Hegel, to think a little bit about what these three texts might be doing here. I have some theories about Herodotus that I'm going to lay on you in a minute, but I wanted to know what you all thought, and, and I'm going to toss it over to Friedrich first, maybe to tell us a little bit about Keeble's Christian Year, which is probably the text that is the most unfamiliar. We talked about Pascal last time. You've probably at least heard of Herodotus. You may not have heard of Keeble's Christian Year, but Friedrich's yeah. here to tell us about it a little bit. Uh, the clergyman John Keeble wrote a bunch of poems, and <laughs> he published them in a book called The Christian Year. And it, it's The Christian Year because it's meant each of these poems is meant to be read on a Sunday or on certain feasts in the liturgical calendar, and it was wildly popular in its day and throughout the 19th century, and then it kind of lost a lot of steam. In the 20th century, people don't really read it very much. It was popular because it produced a lot of hymns and it was used devotionally people read these poems on holy days and it was used by anglicans as a sort of additional devotional practice and what's interesting about it is that it was published in 18 maybe this is a maybe 
interesting is bearing a lot of weight there. Yeah, What's riveted. interesting about it is that it was published in 1827, and uh, we can say that maybe right now or in, after the events of the book in you know, halfway through 1830, 1831. So you've got Herodotus. She's reading, you know, learning to read with Mr. Kozabin in the Greek, I would assume, in that case. Um, and she wouldn't have been educated in Greek as a lady to Pascal, and she would have learned French as a lady, so she can read him in the original too. So she's reading across languages, and then they have this sort of new Christian, Anglican-specifically devotional text to be read alongside these classic works. Herodotus, I think Soren will bring us to in a maybe way that's more interesting than me, but it can be read episodically, I guess you could say. Pascal can absolutely be read devotionally or uh, weekly because it's broken up into all of these observations and thoughts. And then Keeble's Christian Year is rigidly meant to be read uh, along the liturgical calendar. And so I guess they're interesting as ways of marking time or as marking progress through a year and one's own learning, which I would be a little ironized in this novel, which is not a Bildungsroman and is not about clean progress to a narrative conclusion. And at the same time, I think it's, you know, it's it's three texts that they cut across religious <laughs> sensibilities. And so it would be hard to say someone reading these three texts is this type of believer because we have an Anglican devotional that's quite new and quite popular, a a Catholic, but sort of, yeah, sort of a healthy skeptic, I guess you could say, of his age's beliefs, and then a classic, and the, the classic of Greek history. And so what we can pick up from, this is a widely read person, so I'd be interested to hear what you two would say about that, but there's no clear like, oh, this person is reading the classics of the church fathers or something like that it's a a large swath yeah i mean it's it's variety over specialization is part of what you get from it which is an interesting nuance to dorothea the ardent character mm -hmm. right but her ardor comes across reading this thing that's meant to be read then you know it's meant to be read in that time to mark time in a like a sacred circular liturgical way right you're in like sacred time where it's a specific sunday therefore a specific time in the liturgical calendar which is cyclical which you know is sacred and marked by like sacred events which you will return to to commemorate to sort of always have your sort of true north the time of you know faith and where you are in a faith journey and then there's like Herodotus, you know, is more secular time to me. It's not a devotional and it's the time of linear time, one thing after another. It's the time of Herodotus went here, he saw this, he went there, he saw that. And it's the beginning of many historians say, you know, modern history in that sense, right? Modern secular history. And then to me, um, a little bit different than how Friedrich paints it. Both of those are like Kronos. And Pascal is Kairos. Pascal is like, here's this pense, here's this like moment where time is sort of distilled. It's like a slow-mo on your iPhone these days where what exactly am I seeped in and immersed in in this moment? It's the, it's the wager of my soul in all eternity or it's this distillation of how I felt and just a few hundred words. And so that to me is like the 
the way that Elliot's showing us a, a variety here that again is is importantly Dorothea's fixation and Casaban who's supposed to be a master of all of these things he's overlooking it right he's not going to give her the response or communication around oh you're reading these three interesting things and here's here's what they would mean to me and us he's kind of been there done that is his his one note thank you all those are great those are great thoughts i want to press on herodotus a little bit you know we've talked a fair bit about pascal already so i won't return to those and i'm not qualified to talk about keeble Uh, so thank you friedrich for that really nice introduction to that I want to talk about Herodotus in maybe three ways, some of which are related directly to Dorothy and Casabon, which we'll talk about in a minute, but some that are also related to her her kind of deeper authorial project. Because I think Carl's right that in a sense, Casabon's project is deeply antithetical to some of what Herodotus is doing, at least. But in other in in kind of on the flip side of that, Eliot's project is actually quite amenable to what Herodotus is doing. So I'm going to talk about two things there, and then one thing that has to do directly with Casabon and Dorothea. First is that sense of deep history or deep time that Friedrich's done such a good job of bringing us back to over these first few episodes. That sense that for Eliot, that the past is not abandoned, but is just existing there underneath everything else. And, and with Herodotus, I think that's a key to his project, right? He's writing a history about the Persian War. Where does he start us? Oh, well, we got to start back with the Trojan War a thousand years before. And he spends most of the book just not talking about the Persian War, talking about all this other random crap that's going on, but is building his sense of what is behind the Persian mm-hmm. War, his contemporary-ish conflict. And, and I think that's very amenable to what Eliot wants to do here to show us that sense of all these histories that are behind the history that's going on here in middle March that she's putting down. The other thing is just Herodotus's deep sense of sympathy and, and his sort of sense of fellow feeling. Maybe by our standards, he's not particularly uh, sympathetic, but as a Greek, right, who's sort of trained to regard other cultures as being pretty inferior, his book is actually very sympathetic to other religions, to other customs. And he has a broad sense of you know, kind of an an encompassing view of the world. And he's able to take these other cultures and sort of weigh them pretty fairly, right? I I think against his own customs and say like, says they do things this way. We do things this way. That's different, but it's okay. Or this custom actually seems a little better to to me than our customs, or this custom is awful. They shouldn't do that, right? He's For his time and situation, he's a very fair-minded author in a lot of ways. And I think Elliot does a lot of that similar fair-mindedness, a weighing of ideas, a weighing of character traits in ways that are not simplistic or dismissive. So I think those are two things that she has in common with Herodotus. But then there's one thing that I think is very directly related to this moment and what's about to happen with Casabon and Casabon's will. And it has to do with Herodotus's deep sense of the irony of history. And in particular, one thing that happens again and again in the histories is that people bring about their own downfall by trying to accomplish something to prevent their own downfall in some way. And I'm thinking in particular of two stories. One is probably the most famous story from 
the histories other than the stuff that has to do with Thermopylae and whatever, which is the story of King Croesus. So the, the Athenian lawmaker Solon comes to King Croesus in Lydia, um, who's a really rich man. And Croesus says to Solon, who do you think is the happiest man in the world? He's just shown him all of the stuff that he has. And he's expecting Solon to say, oh, you King Croesus. And instead Solon says, oh, it's this Athenian guy I knew. He died really well. And there's like these other two Athenians I knew who also died really well. And Croesus is like, what the hell, man? And, and Solon says to him, I call no man happy before he is dead. And then the rest of King Croesus's life in almost like parabolistic fashion is all of these things that go wrong with his life. Mm. He invites a man to stay with him. And then he tells this man, he's had a vision that his son's going to die in a hunting accident. He tells this man, hey, go with my son on this hunting trip so he doesn't die. Instead, it's that man who accidentally kills his son with a spear. King Croesus very famously gets this oracle saying, if you attack this other kingdom, you're going to destroy a great empire. He's like, that sounds great. He does it. Unfortunately, the great empire he destroys is his own, right? There's this irony of history here. The other story that I think about in connection to Kasaban is the story of Candaules and his wife and his friend Gyges. And Candaules is this king and he's kind of very jealous of his wife's beauty and also kind of wants to show it off. So he convinces his friend Gyges to spy on her when she's naked. She figures this out. She says, Gyges, you got to kill my husband now and become my husband because he's done this kind of unforgivable thing. Otherwise, I'm going to arrange it so that you're dead. So he does. Gyges takes over. And so Candalius kind of brings about his own downfall through these, these character flaws. And I'm thinking about that in particular with, with Kasaban because it struck me on this read through that Kasaban is actually the reason. So we're driving towards this closer relationship between Will and Dorothea. And Kasaban, in the very act of trying to prevent this from happening, causes it to happen. Kasaban puts this provision in his will that Dorothea cannot marry Will or she'll lose his money. Everybody thinks this is a terrible scandal. He does it to prevent Will from getting his money, basically. And also, it seems like sort of out of spite because he thinks that Will and Dorothea have some sort of connection. In doing so, he's actually kind of planting the idea in Dorothea's head. She seems up to that point, somewhat oblivious. I mean, she, she looks on Will with sympathy and likes him, right? To, you know, likes talking to him, feels her mind expanded talking to him and things, but there's no sense of it, a romantic connection there on mm. her side. There is on Will's side, but not on her side. But by the end of this section, when Will's leaving town, they have that moment of recognition and, and oh, oh, actually like, this is a very deep romantic connection between the two of us. And it's brought about because of the scandal of Casabon's proviso. And so I think that, that Elliot is kind of tipping her hand a little bit and showing us this is this sort of ironic sense of history. Casabon, the poor schmuck, right, is bringing about his own downfall in this scenario mm. by his very desire to prevent the thing from happening. He brings it about himself. So I think that that's just, it's an interesting detour into looking at the way in which mm. authors can very quickly and kind of cunningly build out their world and their point of view by including texts as a sort of texture in the world um, that they're giving us. Yeah, I thought you had a lot of great stuff there, Soren. I think that, again, one of the things the realist novel does really well is, um, and if we want to think of, you know, Herodotus as a kind of ur-realism in some way, going back before and then back before, you know, in order to build up to the present moment, you know, it's what War and Peace does as well. It's just this epic extension of the present into the past and all of the different pure glass scratches that brought about the 
current sense, you know, of the web that is the present. I thought you drew that out for us really nicely. You reminded me of the, in the American context, which I'm always more familiar to, the book by Reinhold Niebauer, The Irony of American History, where he, he similarly sees an ironic element in how history unfolds with the sense that, you know, with like mid-century America, there was the, the atom bomb made America more weak in a sense than strong. And he has a nice sort of Eliotic passage there from the first chapter of that, which is, our dreams of bringing the whole of human history under the control of the human will are ironically refuted by the fact that no group of idealists can easily move the pattern of history toward the desired goal of peace and justice. Uh, the recalcitrant forces in the historical drama have a power and persistence beyond our rec reckoning. And he goes on to talk more about America, but I think that applies to the dynamic you brought up there with Casabon's fears sowing the very, you know, undesired outcome of those fears. Okay, that um, seems like a good place to stop for now. We're going to come back next time and wrap up Middlemarch. It's hard to believe we're already there, but um, we'll be talking about books seven and eight. And then just as, a, as an advance notice, after that, we're going to be heading into our first round of books kind of connected to Middlemarch. That first section we're calling The Key to All Mythologies. And it begins with Carl's first pick, the wonderful, breezy, picaresque satire, Candide by Voltaire. So if you want to pick that up and read through it, you can read through it in one sitting probably. Um, we're going to talk about that two episodes from now. Until we get to that point, though, we're going to let Cat Keyboard play us out.